and open in your Bibles, John chapter number 21, and uh, I, I can tell you these people love you, and uh, I mean the Dumplin' Valley loves our church, and the reason I know that is they tolerate my preaching just, just to get to come sing to you, and that's a blessing to me, and uh, I trust they were a blessing to you. John chapter number 21 this morning, and uh, I, I've quit preaching series, but sometimes I preach a lot of messages that seem to have a little bit to do with each other. And uh, we've been preaching a little bit over the past few weeks on some morning scenes in the ministry of our Lord, and particularly the closing of our Lord's ministry. And we've looked at a few of them. With the Lord's help, I want to take one more opportunity this morning to look at another morning scene, and let's see what the Lord has for us in the Word of God. John chapter number 21, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. John chapter 21, verse number 1, the risen Lord is appearing again to His disciples, the Bible says this in verse 1, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, of course, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night, they caught nothing. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring the fish which ye have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. And Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. When he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? 
follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you'd take, Lord, the quick and powerful word of God and that you'd quicken it in our, quicken it in our hearts, that you'd make it powerful in our experience. Lord, that uh, you would take and wield the sword of the Spirit deftly in our lives to expose areas that need to be surrendered unto you, Lord, to convict us of areas that need to be repented of, to encourage us, Lord, in areas where we need encouragement. Lord, we're just, we're looking to you. We're leaning upon you. Everything we need this morning, Lord, we need it from you. So we pray that you would just answer these requests. Pray that you'd speak to the heart of each and every person here. Lord, I, I don't know the heart's condition of every person here. And even if I knew it, it would be beyond me to be able to preach a message that would be meaningful to every person here. But Lord, I'm trusting the ministration of the sweet Holy Ghost to do what I cannot do this morning, to take the Word of God, to wield it and use it in our hearts. We'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we said, for the past few Sunday mornings, we have been following a little bit of a theme through the Gospels. And we have looked at morning scenes, meaning early in the day, morning scenes, at the close of our Lord's ministry. And it's interesting to note that there are several of these that are mentioned. We've drawn our attention to three already, and I wasn't sure whether the Lord would give me liberty to preach this fourth one. We've not mentioned it much, but this morning, by the Lord's help, I want us to consider it. But these four morning scenes that take place, they all reveal some things, and they teach us some things about the Lord's work in our life. You know, the Bible doesn't have to disclose to us that these things happen in the morning could have just said they happened, and really it doesn't have to tell us when. And so we always have to ask the question, listen, there's nothing in this King James Bible that's there on accident. It's all there by divine appointment and purpose. And as such, we ought to ask ourselves, if it's there, why is it there? So I began to think about the morning time of the day, and what is it, uh, what is it indicative of? What is its, its significance? And I began to note a few things. I would say, number one, morning is a time of illumination. Say, so, preacher, what do you mean? Well, things that were in the dark are now brought into the light. In fact, morning is typically defined, although we often will say morning begins a little earlier than the sun comes up. Maybe it does for you, amen. But uh, the morning time is defined as, as when that sun finally rises. All of a sudden, the darkness that has blanketed the land is now driven back and light can expose what is there. Not only that, morning time is a time of transition going from dark to light, from night to day, from one day to the next day. And then morning is a time of anticipation. You'll sit on the cusp of a new day and say, I wonder what this day may hold. You may plan for that day and organize for that day. And so we looked at these different scenes, and each one of these thoughts are embodied by one of these morning scenes. For instance, that morning of illumination we're reminded of when we study about the morning of cursing, when our Lord cursed the fig tree as He passed by. And that revealed some things about what God was doing in Israel as a nation, what God is doing in your life, and what God is doing in my life. Hey, listen, I'm glad God gives us a chance to bloom and to blossom and to grow, aren't you? But I am sternly reminded this morning that that opportunity don't last forever. We have a finite amount of time that we can do something for God. We better get busy doing it. And then the morning of transition reminds me of the morning of Calvary. The morning that they nailed our Savior to the cross. Hey, listen, nothing's ever been the same since Calvary. 
Uh, that was a, a, a definite moment and morning of transition. Calvary changed everything, man. It changed things in heaven. All of a sudden, that blood was applied to the mercy seat in heaven. Now we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means He's the payment. He's the payment for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a mediator at the right hand of God. There's one God uh, There's uh, one God and, and one Savior, one mediator between God and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. He's seated at the right hand and He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Changed everything in heaven. Hey, changed everything on earth. Uh, things ain't never been the same since Christ died on the cross of Calvary. Now men can approach unto God in boldness and access through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go through the barrier of an earthly priesthood. We don't have to go through the ceremony, uh, through the through the barrier of uh, ceremony and of rites and rituals, and uh, we can just come to God through faith, Amen. And then it even changed things under the earth. The Bible says He descended into the lower parts of the earth. He took captivity captive. Now that's talking about the Old Testament saints that though they had had righteousness granted and imputed to them, reckoned to their account, uh, they still were not fit to be in the presence of God because the blood had not yet been applied. Uh, but when that blood was applied. He went down, scooped them all up, and led captivity captive and ascended on high. It was a moment of transition. And then we thought about the morning of conquering, the morning when our Lord arose up, uh, deathless and glorious from the tomb, a conqueror over death and hell and destruction. That was a moment of anticipation. Uh, everything had changed at Calvary, but now the resurrection looks forward to our resurrection through the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I began to think also about morning time as a time that is often, at least if you ain't got kids at home, it's a quiet time, amen? And it's often a time where you'll get up, you'll get your Bible and cup of coffee and you'll sit somewhere and you'll spend some time with the Lord and just try to get your head and your heart and your spirit right for the day. It is often a moment of introspection, a moment of reflection. And I jotted it down this way. It is a time of consideration. It's a time to sit and think carefully about some things in your life, to assess what you've been doing, to assess what you're going to do. And when we come to this passage in John chapter number 21, after the Lord has risen from the grave, He's already met with the disciples on two occasions, but He meets with them on this third. And the purpose for it, it's for all the disciples. But man, here's Peter again, right, right smack in the middle of the whole narrative. And it seems like this whole morning is really just God trying to drive some things home to Simon Peter. Hey, listen, the death, burial, and resurrection had been rough on Peter. It hadn't been easy for none of them, but it had been rough on him. He had denied the Lord. He had cursed him. He had turned his back on him. He had broken his testimony and broken down in tears. He had wept bitterly and he had wondered whether the Lord would have anything to do with him. He got that glorious resurrection morning message that the Lord was looking for the disciples and Peter, uh, that the Lord still loved him, was still interested in him. But then all of a sudden the Lord comes into the upper room. He meets with the disciples and then immediately he's spirited away. He's gone. And the disciples, let's just say it this way, they are flat out confused. They are bewildered. They don't understand what all of this means for their life. They've followed this man for three and a half years and they've seen him rise from the grave. There's no doubt in any of their minds that he is who he said he is. But now all of a sudden he's not walking with them like he used to walk with them. He's not dining with them like he used to dine with them. He's not staying with them. And they're confused about what's going on. When we come to John chapter number 21, we find that morning is a time of consideration. I want to call the message this morning a moment of clarity. The Lord brings some things into clarity 
for Simon Peter. He shows him some things about himself, some things about the Lord, and some things about life. Can I say this? It's good every now and then to have a moment of clarity. To be reminded of who we are, reminded of what's expected of us, and to carefully consider, hey, there's some folks who never take a good hard look at themselves. That's just the truth of the matter. You with me this morning? Hey, you shout when they're singing. Amen. You'll be shouting if I sing, but it won't be for the same reason you shout if they sing. Hey, sometimes there's some folks who never take a good hard look in the mirror and are willing to ask themselves honest questions about themselves. Where's my walk with God at? Have I been living for Him? Have I been serving Him? Have I been doing the things that I like to think that I've been doing? And in John chapter 21, we find there are three areas of Peter's life that he gains clarity on. And I think as we consider them, we'll think carefully about our own lives and hopefully get some clarity this morning. The first is found, it begins really in verse number 2, and it goes down to verse number 12. But let me say the first thing that the Lord gives Peter clarity concerning is he gives him clarity concerning his faith. I want you to listen carefully. Faith is the currency in the economy of God. Faith is what God reckons, what God reveres, what God regards, and what God receives. It's the reason the Bible says whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Hey, there's a lot of things we can do that looks like Christianity that we don't have to lean on God for, and God's not interested in any of it. We walk by faith and not by sight. Isn't that what your Bible says? Uh, Let me tell you what modern day Christianity looks like. It looks like situating our life so comfortably that we never need God for anything and then walking around and telling everybody how much we need Him when we really don't. Uh, Situating our life such that we never have to take a risk, we never have to step out, we never have to lean on Him, we never need Him, and then standing around talking about how much we need Him and how much we lean on Him. Simon Peter had been experiencing this very same thing, and we find it all comes crashing down in this chapter. Notice how it begins. Verse number 2 says this, There were together Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. And Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. Now on face value, that may seem a pretty benign verse. But can I remind you the type of fishing they did? Uh, they didn't go out and wet a line and sit back and, and drink a little sweet tea and wait to see the bobber go up and down. Uh, they didn't go out and feel some bass strike on the artificial lure. Instead, they went out and labored and toiled in a heavy night of work and of difficulty. The type of uh, work that they were doing was not about recreation. It was about resources. I was talking to Brother Nick this morning. We like to do a little fishing sometimes and uh, we're, he was asking me if he got out and done any fishing yet this year. I said, no, nah, I ain't got out. And, uh, he, he said, man, I, he said, I bought me a bait caster the other day. And um, I told him, I said, I can tie knots in fishing line without the help of some expensive reel. Amen. But people that get them love them, you know. I mean, they absolutely love those bait casters and get out and enjoy it. I love the fish. I mean, I, I love to get out in the trout stream, waders on, just get out. And, and I don't catch nothing, but I love just, to, you know, intimidate the fish best I can and I enjoy it, but that's not the kind of fishing that's taking place here. Peter is not going out and enjoying a leisurely night of catfishing. What Peter's doing is he's walking away from the life that he has known, and he's walking back to a life that he had left on the seashore a long time ago. He's not going out as a recreational fisherman. He's going out as a commercial fisherman. And he is saying by this, I'm done following this man from Galilee. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to take care of myself. Let me say, number one, we see the desertion of his faith. 
all of a sudden there's a degradation, a, a decline, a, 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 a denial of who and what he once was. And let's just be honest here. Why do we say that? Because he was no longer leaning on the Lord and he was now choosing to lean in himself. Now, if we'll say that about Peter, why won't we say that about us? If leaning on us is polar opposite, mutually exclusive of leaning on him, then why won't we admit the fact that we've quit leaning on him we've started leaning on us? He walked away from more than just the idea of being a disciple. He was walking away from trusting in the Lord. But what did he find when he did that? Well, the Bible says in verse number 3, they went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? I love that. Sometimes God, yeah, hey listen, God only asks rhetorical questions. You understand that, right? He's an omniscient God. He ain't never asked questions he needed an answer. He asks questions because you need the answer. He knew there wasn't no fish in that boat, but he asked anyway, Children, have you any meat? I, one of the things I hate about going fishing is running across one of them smart elks that catches fish. Don't you hate that? You're out enjoying time fishing, and you, and you look over, and there's some guy just reeling them in, reeling them in. And you'll say, what are you fishing with? And liars. They'll say, oh, just crawlers. That's all. A bunch of liars is what they are. I'm fishing with crawlers. What's... <laughs> so he asks them, he says, children, have you any meat? They had to be honest. I said, no. You know what we find here? We find not only the desertion of faith, but we find the demand for faith. You know what they find? that When they go out and try to do it themselves, they come back with absolutely nothing. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Christ makes it abundantly clear. He says, without me, ye can do nothing. Now, that does not mean that we can't do things without Him. It means the things we can do without Him are nothing. You can accomplish a lot and never need Him, but you've not really accomplished a lot if you didn't need Him to accomplish it. And Peter goes out, and they did a lot of dropping nets in, a lot of picking nets up. At the end of the day, they didn't have nothing to show for. Hey, you want to have a life that has a lot of busyness and energy with no output, with no fruitfulness, with nothing satisfying, you just go in your own strength. And you'll find that you'll spend all night hefting nets down into the water, and they'll come up empty every time. So he asked them this question, have you any meat? Can I ask you this today? Have you any meat in your life? Any substance? Any fruitfulness? Or is it nothing but just puerile religion? Nothing but a mummer's farce? Nothing but a theater for other people? So he says, have you any meat? And they answered him, no. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Now I've heard all kinds of crazy advice fishing. And you'll get people, when you're out and you're fishing and everything, you're like, now what are you doing? They'll say, oh, I know your problem. You tied, you tied the knot on the wrong side. That's the problem. If you had tied it on the other side, it would have been a little different. Or they'll say, no, 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 your problem, you're putting that worm on that hook all wrong. You've got to thread it on there is what you've got to do. And then you got to, and you got to move it over and it's got to have the right thread. Bunch of voodoo is all it is. Fish bite when they want to bite and they don't when they don't want to. I've seen fish caught on stuff that don't make no sense. So you, you can go at the, uh, I, not that you should. I don't know if I got permission to say this, but you can go to Larry Solomon's pond. They'll just follow you around the edge because he feeds them all the time. I have caught fish on an empty hook at that pond. Truth is, they bite when they want to bite. They don't when they don't want to. But there is a third occasion. They do bite when God tells them to. And you know what they found? They found that 
Rationally speaking, there should have been no more fish on the right side of the boat than on the left side of the boat. It wasn't the side of the boat that made the difference. It was the Savior's blessing that made the difference. Let me tell you what we, what we get to thinking in our pride and our arrogance and our hubris. We get to thinking it's that we picked the right side of the boat. We get thinking we did it the right way. I'm smarter than everybody else. I planned better. I, I, I executed this better. But at the end of the day, hey, listen, it's either the favor and blessing of God or it's not. If I have anything in my life that's worth anything, it come from the Lord. That part of me that ain't worth shooting, that's Toby Weber. But that part of me and that part of my life that there's anything good about, hey, listen, that comes from the Lord. We find here the demand for faith. You can find a way to operate through life without ever needing to lean on the Lord, but you'll have not really lived life by doing it. You can find a way to demonstrate some form of godliness, denying the power thereof without faith, but it won't really be godliness. You can find some way to imitate Christianity without ever needing Christ, but it won't really be Christianity. If your Christian walk does not call on you to have to trust Him, then there's something fundamentally broken about it. We find that there is no opportunity for real Bible Christianity without needing the Lord, without leaning on the Lord. I see the demand for faith here. There's no other way to get the job done than to trust Him and let Him work through our lives. But then notice the desire of faith. Verse 7, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land. But as it were, 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this, this is a verse uh, kind of like uh, the Old Testament giants and Adam having a belly button and where Cain get his wife. We can argue endlessly about what was going on here. Uh, it, most commentators would agree that when he says he was naked, it doesn't mean he's stark naked, but rather that he had put off his outer clothes and he was reclining, he was relaxing. But really, they don't know. They weren't in the boat any more than you or I was. And I've heard some people say, well, when he cast himself in the sea, he was trying to commit suicide. I, I would say this. It's too easy to drown to make it to shore if what you're trying to do is drown. That's all right. I'll just say that again. I fed you all too much steak yesterday. Y'all need to get woke up this morning. It's too easy to drown if what you're trying to do is drown to make it to shore the way that Peter did. Now, you can believe anything you want to believe about this, and whenever you're preaching, you preach it any way you want. But I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I think Peter thought he was going to step out of that boat and find firm footing. I think he thought this was going to be like it was before, that he was going to step out of the boat and he was going to find firm footing. But can I, can I just point something out? When he sank, he didn't turn back. He swimmed forward. I want to say a word about the desire of faith. You know what Peter had made up his mind of one way or the other? He had to get to Jesus. You know what faith is going to inexorably teach you when you step out in faith and trust God and live for the Lord? You know the fundamental resounding decision, the resounding truth that will echo in your soul is this. I can't do it without Him. I've got to have it. Peter figured it would be better to be sinking in the water than living on the boat without Him. It'd be better to step out and try and get to Him than it would be to just sit there and float and catch no fish. Let me tell you something. Until we get that kind of desperation, until we make up our mind that if there is a Christianity without Christ, I don't want it. I'm uninterested in playing games. I'm uninterested in being a hypocrite. I'm uninterested in wearing a mask. If there is a Christianity without a Christ, I'm not interested in it. I must 
have Him. I'll have no other type of Christianity than one that He lives and breathes in and one that He blesses and sanctions. The desire of faith brings us to a deep, abiding, desperate need for the Savior. And you know what happened? When He finally got His head straight, He said, I've got to get to Jesus. What happened when He got to Him? Well, I've always loved this, verse number 9. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, "Um, Bring the fish which ye have now caught. That's like showing up too late to potluck. Somebody say amen. Oh, no, 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 no. Everybody's already, you bring it on. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine how that Peter feels. I mean, he had spent all night fishing, all night toiling, all night laboring. He finally gets there. He drags this big old net of fishes up and looks up. And the Lord Jesus has got bluegill frying in the pan up there. But you know what the Lord tells him nonetheless? He says, bring the fish which ye have now caught. There are two things taking place here. Two truths that live in the same space that I want you to listen carefully. He don't need you, but He does want you. Until those, the balance of those two truths lives in a symbiotic way in your heart and mind, your Christianity is going to struggle and flounder. Until you realize He don't need you. He's already got fish in the pan. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our labor. He doesn't need our devotion. But He sure does want it. I see the duty of faith. What's the duty of faith? To take the things that God has blessed you with, to bring them and put them in His hands so that He can do with it what He needs. By the way, can I remind you, I don't know how hungry there was that night, but I'm betting there was fish laid there and rotted on the side of the shore. Would Peter have called that a waste? I don't think he would have after this night. I think he would have said this, that the highest, loftiest accomplishment of the efforts of my life is that they be put at the disposal of the Lord. He can do anything He wants with them. See, here's the problem. We want to say, now, Lord, I'll trust you with my life, but only insofar as you'll accomplish the things that I want to accomplish. We get like Joshua in the Old Testament when he's getting ready to go in and storm the walls of Jericho and the Lord meets him on that hillside and uh, he doesn't know who the Lord is when he sees him. He's praying and getting ready for battle. Uh, but whenever Joshua sees him, he asks him this question. And he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the Lord answers him back and says, Nay, but as captain of the Lord of hosts am I now come. Here's what Joshua said. God, here's my plan. Are you for it or are you against it? The Lord answers back and says, Joshua, I'm above it. This is not your army. This is my army. This is not your battle. This is my battle. And Joshua steps back and he says, All right, Lord, you've got control of it. Can I tell you this? The greatest achievement of your life would be to take it and put it at the feet of the Lord Jesus. You know what, what, what the highest pursuit of faith is not to, to elite tall buildings in a single bound. It's not to fly the span of the world. It's not to build great ministries and fill lots of pews and get lots of attention to our name. It's not to uh, accomplish a lot in the world's eyes. It's not to build a big house and garner a lot of money. Those things, and God doesn't begrudge any of those things, but that is not the reason that we're living the Christian life. Uh, you say, preacher, why, why, why? Why would Peter bring those fish? He could have made a lot of money selling them at market. Why did he bring them? Because they weren't his fish in the first place. When he was fishing, he wasn't catching nothing. Uh, the only reason he caught anything is God let him catch something. So when the Lord said, I want it, Peter, he said, well, they're yours in the first place, Lord. Now, let me talk to you about your Christianity. You say, preacher, why, why would I trust God with my life? Because you didn't have a life before him. You weren't worth hanging before him. 
He saved you. He redeemed you. He made your life something worth living. And it's certainly not out of place for him to say, now give that life to me. By the way, he'll do more with it than you ever would. But it's not in pursuit of that that we deliver it to him. Hey, the duty of faith is to bring the fish that faith has brought us. Bring the blessings that God has granted. Say, now, Lord, this is yours. Do with it whatever you please. By the way, I'm betting Peter was one of them sitting around eating fish. Just because you give your life to the Lord, that does not mean that you're forfeiting any of your own desire and pleasure in your life. Hey, listen, uh, you'll never have as good a time as you will living for Christ. Man, God will do things for you and bless you in ways that you'd never imagine. I've said it before, I sound like a broken record, but if I had worked at my, if I had started at 16 years old, worked 100 hours a week, saved every penny, I could not be where I'm at today without the help of God. He's done more for me than I've ever done for myself. Hey, He's a good God! And He's a sweet Savior. And He's a precious Lord. But I'm telling you this, that in your life, the purpose is not to draw those things out of it. Although you'll find this, that if you'll give God the fish, He'll cook them up. He'll do what needs to be done with him. I see the duty of faith, but then notice verse 12, I see the disclosure of faith. Jesus saith unto them, come and die. The Bible says, none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord. Now this is an astounding statement to me, because there has been, other than the great drought of fishes, there's not really been any perceptible, discernible miracle transpire here. Now I'm not trying to dismiss that drought of fishes, that great bunch of fishes that was brought in. But whenever they get to shore, instead of saying, well, you know, uh, maybe we just did a good job. Maybe we finally landed over a school of them. Maybe we finally dropped the net the right way. Uh, old time uh, fishermen say, you got to hold your mouth the right way when you, when you catch. Maybe we held our mouth the right way. Instead, here's what they do. They attribute to the Lord the blessings that they've enjoyed. And then once they're willing to do that, they can see Him where before they could not see Him. Hey, can I tell you this? God's doing things in your life all the time. You may not see it, because you're not looking for it. But if you'll start looking for it, you're going to start seeing it. All of a sudden, he can see and discern and know and understand things that before he could not see, discern, know and understand. Now he knows who it is that filled the boat because he's looked for him. And in your life, you say, Preacher, I mean, I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm trying to live for the Lord. But discouraging things happen. Failures happen. Mistakes happen in my life. and I just get this hard. And it's like God ain't nowhere around. No, it ain't that He's nowhere around. He's everywhere around. And if you'll look with the eyes of faith, you'll begin to see Him working in your life. I see He gave some clarity concerning His faith. All of a sudden, Peter can see his faith has not been what it needs to be, and he needs it to be what the Lord wants it to be. And God will do something with it if he'll just trust the Lord and go forward in living for him. But then notice what happens in verse 15. The Bible says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Now, as is the case with Peter jumping out of the boat, I'm going to readily admit to you, man, there's things that you and I might disagree on in what I'm about to say about this passage. There's probably some things that you've got wrong and I've got right and some things I've got right and some things you've got wrong. Is that? I just bugs bunnied you, didn't I? And one of these days we'll get to heaven and find out we both was probably a little wrong about some of it. But... I want you to notice three things here, four, five, a hundred, something uh, here. And let me just say it this way. Three times the Lord asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? 
Now, you remember what I said a moment ago. The Lord only ever asks rhetorical questions. An omniscient God doesn't ever ask the questions He needs an answer. So this question, like all the others, being asked for the benefit of Simon Peter. And in that, here's what He's doing. He's giving them some clarity regarding His fidelity. So what do you mean, preacher? His love. We all say we love the Lord. If I took a poll, everybody in this room say, yeah, I love Him. But are we ever willing to stop and examine that claim and say, you know, I say I love Him, but am I really treating Him like I love Him? Notice a few things here. Number one, I want you to notice the title that He employed. It says in verse 15, when they dine, Jesus saith to Simon Peter. Now the Holy Ghost calls him Simon Peter. But Jesus speaking to him says, Simon, son of Jonas. There are other places that the Lord calls him Peter or Cephas, which is another way of saying. You know that Simon was one of the people in the Bible that had two names? Originally, he was not known as Peter. If you had gone to uh, Peter when he was a young boy and a group of boys stand around, you said, Peter! He wouldn't have turned his head. He had never been called that before in his life. His name was always Simon. His daddy's name was Jonas. Then one day, the Lord, in speaking to him, bestows upon Peter this name of Peter. And in that, what he's doing is he's giving him a spiritual legacy and identity. He's saying, you ain't who you used to be. Now you're something new. If you want to look into the minutia of it, it's in the passage where he says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. He says, Peter, you're like a little pebble. I'm like the main rock that the church is built upon, but you're to be in my image and my visage, and you're to be, uh, you're to be representative in your testimony to the world. There's a lot going on there, but can I just point this out? When Peter, like, kind of like Jacob in the Old Testament, when Jacob was being a trickster, the Bible calls him Jacob. When Jacob was uh, looking for the Lord and living for the Lord, he was always called Israel. And in the New Testament, you probably couldn't find a more apt comparison between Jacob and anyone else than for Simon Peter. When Simon was behaving, he was Peter. When he was misbehaving, he was Simon. That old name, that old nature. We find here that the Holy Ghost reveals something about all of us. What does he call him? He calls him Simon Peter. Can I tell you something? You got born again. Praise the Lord, man. I'm proud for you. I rejoice with you. But that don't mean you got rid of that old nature. It just means you got a new nature living within you. And now that old nature and that new nature are going to fight with each other about who's going to get control over your life. Hey, you're still Simon Peter. You're still both of them. But what does the Lord Jesus call him? He doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. What is, what is the Lord doing? He's reminding Peter, Peter, you're acting like that old Simon fella that you used to be. Can I tell you this, that any lack of love that we have towards the Savior, it's not born of the spiritual side of us, but the natural side of us. You know, the Bible says that the natural man, he, can, he cannot be subject to the law of God. Hey, that old part of you don't like nothing about God. It sure enough don't love nothing about God. doesn't like the Word of God, the things of God, the work of God, the truth of God, the gospel of God. That old part of you don't care for none of that. It's that new man in you that loves those things. And in our life, when there is a love failure in our behavior towards the Lord, you know why? Because we've been operating in that old flesh. I see the title that he employed. Notice the testimony he recalled. He asked him a fascinating question. He says, lovest thou me more than thee? Commentators have been arguing ever since the ink dried on the paper about what these are. And you'll find some that will say, well, those these are the fishes. He's saying, do you love me more than the fishes, Peter? And then others will say, no, he's talking about the disciples, saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me or more than you love the other disciples? You say, preacher, which is it? And I say, yes. <laughs> Truth of the matter is this, 
I don't know which it is. I could argue for both sides. But can I point this out to you this morning? There's a truth in each of them. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, stop and think about it this way. Peter makes two definitive statements in his life of devotion, of love, of affection, of loyalty towards the Lord. And in this question, both of these are being brought back to his mind. Why does the Lord ask him, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because Peter had once said he loved the Lord more than anything, and he sure enough hadn't been acting like he loved the Lord more than anything. I wonder, we say, well, preacher, I love him, I love him, I love him. Well, let's imagine he's talking about the fishes. What are they representative of? They're representative of that old way of life, that dependence upon self, that natural man, those fleshly desires that Peter had within him. And I, I just ask you this, hey, do you love the Lord more than you love yourself? There's a great many people that love Him more than they love anybody else, except that person looks back in the mirror. That person gives the Lord some competition. But can I remind you, there was a time when Peter said this in Matthew 19. He said, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Hey, he said, We've left everything behind. But evidently, he had a few fishing nets left in the old shed out back. Because when the time came, he went and picked them up and went back to that old way of living. I wonder how much we've really left behind. Or are we hanging on to it in hopes that we might use it again? Did he love him more than his fleshly desires? Did he love him more than his fellow disciples? Now, this may seem a little unfair, and I'll be honest with you. If that was your assessment, I, I'd probably be a little inclined to agree with you. I don't know that the Lord is trying to foster a competitive spirit between Peter and the other disciples. I don't think the Lord would do that. But it could be the Lord is reminding Peter of some things that he said in the past. You remember what he said on the night before our Lord was crucified? Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Now, I don't think the Lord would have normally said, do you love me more than these disciples? But here's what the Lord's doing. He's bringing back to his mind. You know, Peter, one time you said you love me more than anybody loved me. There's not a one of us that hasn't probably boasted at some point, boy, I love him more than anything, and I love him more than anyone. That may be true at certain moments in your life, but are you brave enough to ask yourself that question this morning and say, have I really been living like I love him. I see the title he employed in the testimony he recalled. But then notice the test that he invoked. He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. <laughs> Classic Peter, isn't it? Not, I don't know, Lord, do I love you? I don't know, Lord, you want me to love you in a different way? Do you want me to love you more? I, Lord, is there something more I can do? That's not Peter. No, Peter, just, he just, he takes off that size 12 sandal and puts that foot right in his mouth and says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And then the Lord gets to the heart of the matter. He says, feed my lambs, Peter. He'll say, feed my sheep, Peter. He'll say, die for me, Peter. I see the test that he invoked here. It's very simple. He says, you love me? Prove it. Prove it through your obedience to my word. Hey, talk is cheap. You know that. I know that. Hey, I, listen, I love church. I go to church all the time. I mean, I go to church more than most people. I, I'm in church so much, I don't even know what it's like to not be in church. I love going to church. I love getting in the house of God and worshiping, testimonies, people bragging on the Lord. Sometimes they do a little bragging on themselves as they brag on the Lord. And sometimes we get in that thing of, oh, I just, you know, I just, he, he's so precious, I love him so much. And we ought to say that. We ought to testify that. Don't misunderstand me. But I'd ask you this question, are we proving it with more than our lips? Are we proving it with our life as well? Are we living for it? 
says, you love me, you say you love me. Hey, listen, the Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We can say we love him all we want, man. And you say, preacher, does that mean anything? Well, if it's true, it does. If it's backed up by a life that expresses that love in the way that we live, then yes, it's meaningful. But I'll tell you this, it's an affront to God if it's nothing but words in the wind. I'd rather keep my silence and not lie about my love for him than to proclaim my love for him when if I was being honest, my life is not showing it. I see the test that he invoked, and then I see the tendency that he cautioned here. Now, I'm not going to read it, but, but we've noticed it. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my lamb. Peter, do you love me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my lambs, Peter. Feed my sheep. Why does the Lord ask him three times? Some commentators have said it's because of the three times that, the, that Peter denied him. Probably a pretty good answer. I mean, it'll do until somebody smarter than you or I shows up, gives something better. Other people have said, well, he, he was asking him, you know, three times, one, one for each sort of name or identity, Simon and Peter and Cephas. Or some have said, well, it, it relates to the different phases of Peter's ministry later on. I think there's probably some truth to that. I, I don't know. But can I just, can I just make a real practical observation? Why did he ask him three times? Because it can change that quickly. You love him. You loved him yesterday. Do you love him today? You love him today. Or are you going to love him tomorrow? See the tendency here? The tendency is this, that we backslide, that we decline, that we degrade, that we denigrate our love towards him. I'll tell you something. You're not naturally getting better. That, that's Marxist evolutionary thought, that the world's naturally just spinning in a better direction. And open your eyes. Things getting better. Things ain't getting better. I don't matter what it is. Hey, listen, you, uh, you, you leave the yard as it is, it's going to grow over and grass over and weed over. And mankind's just the same. Mankind left unto himself ain't going to get better. Mankind's going to get worse. And, and let me say in your Christian walk, if left untended, it ain't going to get better. You're not just going to naturally be a superstar, friend. Instead, here's what's going to happen. You're going to draw away from him. You're going to develop a coldness, a callousness, an indifference, an apathy towards him. I see the tendency that he cautioned. There's one little thing that takes place here, and I want you to notice it. It's interesting, and it's especially interesting to note that the Gospel of John ends with this passage, with the focus not necessarily really on John. John is mentioned, but but it's a story about Peter. And, and notice what happens. Verse number 18. Now, the Lord has just said, Peter, you love me, feed my lambs. You love me, feed my sheep. You love me, feed my sheep. And then verse 18 is a continuation of that. Peter, here's what feeding my sheep is going to entail for you. Here's what it's going to involve for you. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee. Gird meaning at broad strokes purposes to dress. In other words, he's saying, right now, you pull your pants up, put your boots on, you go anywhere you want, Peter. But there's coming a day when you ain't going to have that liberty. There's coming a day that your body will be weak, will be frail, and others will gird you, and others will carry you whither thou wouldest not. This, John says, spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. When he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. History suggests to us that Peter, this exact thing happened. Uh, they took Peter, they girded him, they took him from the executioner's holding cell, and they spread his hands wide and nailed him to a cross, just like his Savior. It, it said that Peter requested that he be crucified upside down. He said, it's not, I'm not worthy to die in the way that my Lord died. 
we find in here what? Well, let me say it this way. We find some clarity. But it's clarity regarding what? It's clarity concerning his focus. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Are you going to serve me? Yes, I'm going to serve you. All right, Peter, here's what serving me means. It means going places you don't want to go. It means doing things that oftentimes you don't want to do. It means having things happen in your life that often you would not choose and would not prefer. Oh, serving Him is easy when serving Him is really serving us. But when we've got to choose between serving us or serving Him, then the rubber meets the road. We find here a startling prediction. Peter's life would not end with a glorious moment of, of applause and men's approval. and It would not end with the vindication of his status as an apostle. People finally seeing that Peter's who he says he is and finally seeing that Peter's a man of God. Instead, it would end at the hands of Roman executioners. He says, all right, Peter, now that you know that's what it is, follow me. I've often said, and I've heard people say, boy, I wish I, just, I had a crystal ball. I wish I could tell the future. No, you don't. You say that. If you had a crystal ball, you'd look at it one time, you'd crawl in the bed, pull the blankets over your head, and never come out. If you knew everything you're going to have to face in life, you'd just quit right now. You wouldn't even want to go any further. Peter is given a glimpse into the future of serving the Lord, and it's not pleasant. It's not pleasurable. It's not enjoyable. Now, Peter would go on to gain a lot of gratification living for the Lord. Don't, 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 let, me, don't let me undersell the goodness of serving God. But I'm going to be honest with you, too. There's going to be times that you're serving them and it ain't going to be easy. I see a startling prediction here. Now, Peter now has to ask himself this question. Peter has to face this. All right, Peter, you up for this? You ready for it? You know what it means to serve the Lord? Are you ready to do it? And then Peter does what my eight-year-old does all the time. He found a good, healthy, solid distraction. He turns and he looks at John. And he says, well, what about him, Lord? What's going to happen? Tell me all the awful things that's going to happen to John. That'll encourage me. Sounds like a Baptist, doesn't it? Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? We see here a startling prediction, but then we see a sudden distraction take place. Peter's losing his focus all of a sudden. Now it's not about whether he loves the Lord and whether he wants to live for the Lord and whether he's going to do something for God. Now all of a sudden it's, what about this fellow over here? Can I tell you what will be death to your Christian walk? Is if you spend all your time in everybody's business and neglecting your own. We oftentimes look for distractions. The distraction here had nothing to do with John. I don't think Peter really cared whether John lived or died. If you read it, I think there's probably, I think they probably loved each other in the Lord, but like good Baptists, they probably wanted to kill each other a lot of times. There seems to be some underlying things going on there. But I don't think it was about John. I, I think this was a deflection because it was really about Peter. The Lord had asked something of Peter that Peter didn't know whether or not he was ready to commit. And rather than being honest enough to face that reality about himself, he looks for a scapegoat and for somebody else to put the attention over on. He says, what about John? What about John? What about John? What about this man? What's he going to have to go through? Lord, it's not fair. You're asking me to do this. What about John? The Lord asks him this sobering question. Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come. Man, I want you to, I want you to really think about this next phrase. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. What is that to thee? I can tell you what Jesus should be. He should be our everything. But what is that to thee? 
If somebody else gets blessed and you don't, what's that to be? Did you get in this thing to be blessed? If as you're serving God, all of a sudden, tragedy befalls your life and, and you don't understand God, why'd you get into this thing? Because you had God figured out? Is that is that why you got into it? See, here's the reality. The only way to keep our focus is through faith. The only way to keep our eyes on the Lord is through faith. Man, there's going to be all kinds of things happening in your life and my life that on face value are going to seem unfair, unjust. But at the end of the day, there's nothing we'll face that God won't equip us to be able to handle if we'll keep our focus on the Lord. He says, what's that to thee, Peter? Follow thou me. Ain't no telling how much better church would be if we get our eyes off everybody else and get them on the Lord. Ain't no telling how much better our lives would be if we get our eyes off everybody else. Oh, but preacher, you don't know what they did. What's that to thee? What's that to thee? Did God say, hey, serve me, but only if everybody's nice to you. Serve me, but only if you've got the biggest house on the block and the nicest car. Hey, serve me, but only until things go a little sideways and then you can give up. You said you loved Him. You said you want to follow Him. You want to follow Him. What are you looking at everybody else for? Hey, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Keep your eyes on Him. Uh, you'd be amazed how much heartache you'll be spared of if you'll keep your eyes on Him. You'd be amazed how much jealousy you'll spare yourself of if you'll keep your eyes on Him. You'd be amazed how much confusion you'll save yourself of if you'll just keep your eyes on Him. But if we're being honest, some of us have lost focus. We've allowed the things of this world to distract us, the responsibilities of this world to distract us, the discouragement of other people in this world to distract us. And we've said, now Lord, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And the Lord's answered and said, hey, what's that to thee? Just follow thou me. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to meet the Lord in this altar. If God has spoken to your heart about some area, hey, how's your faith? Are you trusting Him? Boy, there's times it's hard to do. I know that. Are you trusting Him? What about your loyalty, devotion, your love, your affection, your fidelity towards Him? Do you really love Him the way that you believe that you love Him? Does your life testify of that? Or if you were being honest, would you have to admit you've developed some blind spots about that? you made some excuses for some things in your life. Won't you meet down here, ask His forgiveness, but ask Him to teach you to love Him more. Or maybe in your life you've lost focus. It's become about everything else and everyone else, and you forgot about Him. Won't you come get your focus back on Him? Lord, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.